Hi, I'm Jennifer Love of the Living Wealthy Institute, and this is The Nature of Money Show. My mission as a money therapist is to empower leaders to end what I call emotional poverty and to grow their internal net worth right alongside growing their investments and businesses, ultimately to live wealthy. I'm excited to share these stories with you. And so subscribe right now to The Nature of Money wherever you find podcasts to get episodes as soon as they drop. What is debt? And what is the story or narrative you believe about it? Many women in business will borrow money at some point in their career, whether it's startup capital to grow, bridge financing to cover unexpected expenses, or as we saw in 2020, emergency funds to get through an economic and global health crisis. There is such a thing as healthy and unhealthy debt. And in this episode, we explore the difference. And as we do, we'll uncover the unconscious parts of our debt story and how it is often linked to addictive behavior. We open with Lily Mockerman, a founder who ended up with over half a million dollars in debt, despite her hardline personal commitment to avoid debt at all costs. Her story walks us through a pattern of addiction fueled by a desire for control, which was imprinted on her as a little girl when her parents lost her family home. We'll also hear from addiction specialist, Dr. Reeve Kareem, who offers greater insights into the world of addiction. And Mary Shores, a CEO of an innovative collection agency with a heart for transforming the way we communicate. And this week, we're asking you, if you're willing to re-examine your relationship with debt, what is your story and narrative? Maybe you too have been acting out of unconscious beliefs and an addictive pattern or avoiding the very thing that could set yourself free. Let's continue our conversation together so you can experience a well-filled life that is both satisfying and joyful. This is what Living Wealthy is all about. I sat down with Lily Mockerman, who I've had the pleasure of working very closely with over the last several years. And Lily is the CEO of Total Customized Revenue Management, and she's also the founding partner of ThinkUp Enterprises. In her own words, here's Lily's debt story. I was the person who set out to never have any debt and then managed to rack up about $500,000 of it. I had sort of a fear of debt, which stemmed from a childhood experience where we nearly lost our house. And at that time, I was about 10 years old and decided that you know, I never wanted to have debt because it was clearly something that put people at risk. And so I wanted to pay for everything with cash, which of course didn't uh, work out because I think most of us can't pay for everything in this world with cash. Uh, But I kept my debt very tightly under control. And then I was working with my CPA and very well-meaning, she suggested that as we grew our team, that I should get a line of credit in order to cover payroll when Uh, clients were late in their payments or things like that. So it made sense logically, but it really kicked off this debt addiction for me that I didn't even realize was happening because it was sort of a subtle growth pattern. 
you know, paying off this debt would be just around the corner, but I just needed a little bit more to get me through this little piece. So very much like you might hear somebody say about a drug addiction, I just need one more hit. I just need a little bit here. And so through that, it just continued to grow and grow. And then there was the fact that I'm so attached to this idea of not having debt, right? So whenever I would pay off a particular debt, uh, even if I dipped way too deep into my cash flow to do it, which then set me up for needing to reapply for a different debt or more debt later on, um, I would get sort of this dopamine hit of, wow, I, I paid it off. Congratulations. Good for you. And Uh, I have a bad habit of celebrating by spending money sometimes. So then I would go out feeling really rich and powerful and ready to conquer the world and decide that it was a good time to invest in something additional for the business. And you can create value with just about anything that you want to spend money on, but it turns out you have to actually have the money to spend. So I would just end up getting myself further in debt each time I paid something off and then decided to quote unquote, reinvest this extra money I felt like I had because I wasn't putting it towards this or that particular debt. So it became this kind of nasty cycle to the point where eventually I just became so overwhelmed by the amount of debt that I had. And it just felt like this mountain that I couldn't get over, get through. And so then I began to panic. And I remember when uh, we worked on this, Jen, I, I drew this little diagram of what the debt cycle looked like for me. So it, it started with, okay, I don't have enough money. So I take on debt. And then I have to make the payments and I don't have the cash flow. So then I put it put together this big sales push with extra efforts and everybody's focused on it to make extra revenue. I hit the goal that I set to get myself out of the weeds, not necessarily ahead, but safe, uh, so to speak, within what I was bringing in from a cash flow perspective. And then I would celebrate by spending money, which would put me back in debt and just start that whole cycle all over again where I had to do another sales push. But at different points throughout that cycle, it was actually causing me to get that kind of dopamine hit of what felt like success, but in reality was just, you know, the normal things that you should be working towards, not necessarily any great achievement that I had paid off the debt that I probably shouldn't have taken out in the first place, that really I was covering up other issues within my business and avoiding addressing them and covering up with debt. The cycle of debt addiction is very similar to many other kinds of addiction. Often what I see in my work with clients is that debt addiction is an emotional numbing tool. It's a tactic used to avoid deep emotional pain hidden in manic euphoric moments. And then again in deep dark low moments, much like what Lily has described here. And to dig into and understand the addiction cycle more deeply, I brought in an expert, Dr. Reef Kareem. By day, Dr. Reef Kareem is a highly respected double board certified physician specializing in neuroscience and human behavior and addiction. He's been interviewed by the likes of Oprah and Anderson Cooper and Larry King and Deepak Chopra. And a quick side note, he recently sold his addiction treatment center in Los Angeles. 
and by night. He taps into his creative powers of improv and acting and comedy and storytelling. He's a working actor, writer, and consultant on projects like Veep, The Born Identity, and Private Practice. And as a friend of Reef, well, I'll also mention that he was recently voted as one of LA's most fascinating people and voted one of People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive. So hey, smart and sexy do go together. I went into addiction because I felt like it was so misunderstood. There's so much dark darkness and pain that people are going through that the average physician just doesn't understand. And because of that, I was like, look, there's this neurotoxicity happening in the brain based on you know chemicals that you're putting in the brain. But there's also this hijacking of this reward system that we inherently have that's supposed to be a good thing. It's supposed to be this evolutionary biology machinery where um, we, we eat when we're hungry, we drink water when we're thirsty, we nurture our young, we, we do all these things to support the survival of our species because it feels good because we get an elevation in dopaminergic tone when we engage in these behaviors. And suddenly gambling and shopping and inter- the internet and who knows, maybe even sex or, or some other behaviors become a, a form of, of hijack of this, this circuitry and this machinery. And these other drugs of abuse override and, and take over this machinery as well. And they, you know, if you look at some of the research on the shell of the, your, an area of your brain called the nucleus accumbens, it, it jacks it up like methamphetamine hundreds and hundreds of times more than the average, you know, you eat when you're hungry, you drink when you're thirsty. It, it really takes over this area of your brain such that that hijacked neurobiology suddenly turns into a behavioral response. And the behavioral response is when I look at somebody who's under the influence actively, and I don't just mean like they're driving under the influence, I mean they're living under the influence. They no longer make decisions on their own. The, the decision is being made by the drug or the decision is being made in this case by money and their relationship to money. I've worked with many, many, many gambling addicts, people that have have an impulse control disorder associated with shopping. People who bet on on sports betting, and and uh, you know are are really tied into not just fantasy, but but so much more to the point where they go bankrupt because of it. And so much of it is rooted in impulsivity. And the impulsivity causes a neuroadaptation. So it's a big word, but it essentially means that you start getting into the behavior like gambling, or you start getting into the behavior like shopping, or you start getting into the drug like cocaine. And eventually, your brain starts changing to reprioritize differently. And it, it, it suddenly your brain is reprioritizing uh, for that drug or for that behavior to the point where you don't really, you're not able to judge and have executive decision-making and executive functioning in the normal way that you had done previously. And so 
all of a sudden, all you're thinking about is engaging in that behavior. And if you don't engage in the behavior, you get a dysphoric response. And I'm not going to get into all the chemicals, but there's all sorts of hormonal and chemical responses that change. There's a cascade that changes when you're under the, the influence of a behavior or a drug. So you feel awful, like awful, like a hundred times worse than you normally would if you don't engage in that response. When you look at somebody who's in debt or has a negative relationship with money, it usually is rooted from a problem early on. And that early on problem, whether it was control with money or it was, um, you know, the family being in debt in the past, or it was uh, power or self-soothing or compulsive buying, retail therapy, competition with money, distractions with money, desirability or attractiveness and status with money. There's so many different ways we can have a relationship with money that can lead us astray. And, um, it usually starts with that. And then with the people that I've seen in my treatment center or at, at UCLA when I, when I was there, is it leads into an addiction. But it doesn't start as an addiction. It starts as the, just this bad relationship with money. Emotionally painful relationships are commonly rooted and begin in childhood through our patterns of relating and how we understand the world often making it feel very challenging to overcome. And yet, nature teaches us how to persist. Take a dandelion, for example, a weed who survives and thrives through the toughest of conditions, growing in the cracks of concrete sidewalks in the middle of a drought and intolerant heat with no rain for a month. Things are sometimes rough in the world, obstacles constantly finding their way into your path. You find yourself down and struggling just to find your way to some sunshine. Things like debt are cracks in the sidewalks of your life tripping you up while you're simply trying to walk through the world and survive. What to do? Weeds teach us that we can make it through. Perseverance is the one thing we can rely on. We can set goals for ourselves in our business with our finances. But is our desire and our commitment to overcome all of the trials and obstacles and old narratives that will get us there? Let's go back to Lily's childhood experience for a moment. You know, I think that it really was that sort of fear and debt that was instilled in me that caused sort of the addiction in a way. And that was a piece of it, right? So in that, that explains a lot around how I was managing debt when I did have to take it on and the fact that I would sort of overspend, so to speak, on debt payments when I didn't really have the cash flow to do that, when I should have maybe been making minimum payments or something like that because I was so desperate to get rid of that debt and come back to safety because in this childhood experience, you know, when you're 10 years old and you hear that you might lose your house and you need to sell your stereo to put together as much money as you can. And you're looking at the chandelier and selling that so that you can have some, you know, basic light fixtures that are cheaper or whatever the case may be. That's pretty dramatic. To explore good versus bad debt from a business case perspective, I brought in Mary Shores. Mary owns an innovative collection agency and she's also a communication expert. 
and best-selling author who transforms people's words to help them fall back in love with their work and their customers. When I was younger in my business, you know, I never wanted to have any debt. I had a belief that if I had a debt to pay back, that maybe it um, put my company at risk, you know, because I would be owing something that was outside of the normal cash flow, cash flow cycle of, you know, whatever is happening in that month. And so I myself had to actually adjust my belief about debt to understand that, you know, if you have a small business or you're opening a business and, you know, sometimes you can grow so much faster and better if you have cash to spend. So what I mean by that is like, Say, for example, that you're a new company and you need to hire, you need to hire a marketing person and you need to hire a salesperson. Well, it might be wise to get, go ahead and get funding for the first, say, year of those salaries that you're going to need to pay. Because if you don't do that, then what happens is you become stressed out every single month, wondering whether you're going to make ends meet. So, you know, in a small business situation, oftentimes it's like a household. And so if you have have the cash, then you're, you're less stressed. And I'm not suggesting just to take debt when you don't need it, but take debt when you want to make a major investment for the expansion of your business. Debt becomes bad when it is used for things that are, are just, are not an investment or they're used for things that are material, but not necessary. So what I mean by that is there's like a difference between needs and wants. So I may need a car, but I may want a Mercedes Benz. We even have, we even have a term for it, shop therapy. I mean, what is shop therapy? Oh, you feel bad about something or you're feeling depressed. So go out and buy something because you're going to get that dopamine hit when you do. So the moment you get that dopamine hit, you know, you feel, you feel better, but only temporarily. And you do that over and over and over again. And next thing you know, you have, uh, an overabundance of things in your house or in your, you know, wherever you live that you really don't need. And then that becomes like baggage. You know, if you think about all these things that you just sort of mindlessly buy and you're putting all, all in a backpack and going hiking with it, imagine how heavy that would be. And, you know, I think that it's one of the reasons why minimalism is becoming so popular because we just don't need all these things. I think that a simple way to gauge yourself is you ask yourself if buying this thing will either cleanse my budget or will it clog it? And here's how you can tell the difference. So if you are buying the purse and the shoes because you're about to go to a conference over the weekend, or maybe you have a hot date or, you know, something that is opportunistic in some way. And if by buying that pair of shoes and like, you know, because I know you personally, Jennifer, you have like a fabulous wardrobe and you always look amazing. If buying that amazing piece of wardrobe is going to give you an edge at your conference, you know, maybe you're giving a speech, then that's an investment. An investment is always a cleanse. And then on the other hand, if you're going out and buying that, that pair of shoes or that purse, because your husband did something that irritated you and, and that's your way of punishing him, that's definitely a clog. You can think of cleanse or clog like 
cleanses are what get you closer to your goals in, in life. And, you know, life is, uh, multiple areas, your health, your finances, your career, your relationships, your, your family, you know, all of that. Is it, if, if doing this supports those goals, then it's always a cleanse. But if taking this action is going to move you farther away from your goals, then it's always a clog. So if you're going out and you're buying the shoes and the purse because something has happened to you that made you sad, or you know it's gray outside for three or four days in a row and you're just feeling down, and so you're going out there because you need a dopamine hit, well, I mean, that's sort of the basic definition of what I understand addiction to be. Now, what I also want to add to this is because I'm a big fan of Dr. Gabor Mate's work on addiction. And he said, addiction always comes from trauma. So, you know, I, I think we don't think of it always that way. We think of it sort of as habits that have gone awry. So if shopping is your addiction, it would probably be good to take a look at like, what were some of the tragic circumstances in your life and have you dealt with them? Dr. Reef Kareem tells us more. He suggests that the more trauma someone has, the more likely an addiction will be formed. And he offers a key to recovery. Listen for it. I quote this study a lot just because it's a really cool study, but the ACE study, which, which looks at how trauma in early childhood and, and, you know, Gabor Mate is a friend of mine. He talks about gestational trauma, but how, how trauma early on or even gestational trauma can lead to, if you have enough of it, or if it's, if it's much more significant trauma than your ability to be resilient, um, it can lead to uh, addictions and more problematic behaviors because it overrides your system. So there's no doubt that childhood abuse of many kinds, neglect, uh, inconsistency, uh, a lot of conflict in the house, uh, divorce, a serious nasty divorce, alcoholic parents, drug addicted parents. I mean, there's so much. If you look at the study, I mean, there's so many different variables that they put in and how much more likely you are of developing an addiction when you have a lot of these. So there's no doubt that trauma early on can prime you to uh, to need a, a, or possibly become dependent on a behavior or a drug or money in this case to, to self-soothe or to make it some kind of attempt at self-soothing. But it's also what kind of level of resilience have you adopted? Like I, I've worked with Many different people, uh, but there were two that come to mind in this in this example. There were two gentlemen that both in their probably they were forties at the time, maybe late thirties, that uh, were in uh, the World Trade Center um, during nine eleven, and both got out. Both were okay physically. Both got pretty messed up mentally, um, and one of them shortly thereafter in our work together was able to maintain functionality and did really well in their job and got a family and and is doing great and the other one is a total mess and they're they're physically about the same level of health they seemed prior to the incident uh, the trauma, they seem to be, to be about the same from a mental health perspective. So why did one completely fall apart, whereas the other did fine? 
they have, it's our internal level of resilience. We're only able to tolerate what matches our level of resilience because I can't inject resilience into somebody. And if somebody has a poor functioning in regards to their resilience, uh, they're going to have more and more problems that are going to lead to potentially an addiction or some kind of mental health issue. Resilience. The way I like to think about this is how are we being with the circumstance, the energy, the emotion? How tight are we to our viewpoint? We can either stand in negative self-judgment, the inner critic, or we can look at what's really true about the situation and step into the emotional experience, the story, the overwhelm, and say, I can see more. I'm not going to be blinded by the fear, by the judgment. I'm actually accessing my truth in this moment the wholesome truth. And from this place of what is, I have more choice about strategies to take and how to move forward. Turning back to the nature of the dandelion weed, they're often unwanted and undesirable. And yet the dandelion is filled with nutritional value and persistently thrives on its built-in resilience. However, when the dandelion is left unchecked or unattended, it can completely take over a lawn or garden. So persistence may be an attribute, but left unchecked can fuel a fear-based and scarcity mindset. For example, when we leave our persistent inner critic unattended, unhealthy judgments and criticism can take over, turning our dandelion persistence into a weed which chokes the wealthy garden of our mind. Lily shares her experience on this. This reminds me very much of one of my favorite TV commercials. I believe it might be a Geico commercial, and it's modeled after a bad horror film, so to speak. And so the characters are scared, and they're, they're trying to get away from this chainsaw-wielding bad guy. And... The, the one person says, I know, let's go hide in the garage full of additional chainsaws. And then the other girl says, why can't we just get into the running car? It's very much like that, though. When you're in that frantic and scared energy, you don't see some of the obvious better choices that are actually available to you. You just kind of panic and make decisions not out of logic, but out of fear. And that's just, that illustration popped into my head as you were saying it. I think that's a great illustration of exactly what we're talking about. What Lily is describing here is greater access to choice and a connection with self. Listen in for what is made possible when we access this in ourselves. So once I really sat down with a clear head and stopped moving money for the sake of moving money and looked at, you know, we're in the hospitality industry in the midst of COVID-19. Revenue is not great for us right now because there's just so many less people traveling in the midst of the pandemic. And so we're learning how to weather that. So in many ways, that actually helped us to approach things with a new view because it it backed us into a corner in a few areas. We had to let go of certain staff and either furlough or long-term layoffs because we just couldn't sustain the same level of business that we had previously. 
And that led to other questions about our business model and our correct pricing and how to really approach this from a more logistical standpoint that would allow the business to be successful, allow the business to be successful in the long term, as opposed to struggling all the time. So some of the things that we shifted there were making minimum payments on debt instead of constantly trying to pay them off and then working ourselves into needing more and more debt over time because we'd overused our cash flow. Um, And really, once we got through all of this and looked at our budgeting, we're looking at a very successful year ahead where we're likely to pay off, you know, we don't have a a full $500,000 of debt anymore. But in just one year, with these adjustments, we're looking at the ability to pay off 75% of our remaining debt and really have a manageable debt load and a 20% profit margin. Whereas in our business, you would normally see something like a 5% profit margin because it's very tight. So what my younger self needed to hear more than anything is that this is going to be okay and that you're safe. No matter what happens with money, there's always ways to be. And it's not just, you know, a blankness or you you don't cease to exist if you lose your house. There's other options. There's all these other things that you can go through that, that allow you to be stable, even in a terrible situation like losing your house. So understanding that there are things that you can do that are within your control and that even outside of your control, what matters is the way that you show up in the world and you can do that regardless of money. I asked Lily, what are you looking forward to now as a new possibility in your life, in your business? Well, I'm really looking forward to not having a uh, of debt. That is probably at the top of my list. (laughs) Um, But it goes beyond that because it's not just about the debt, right? It's about what that makes possible for us. And so as part of that exercise, when we were going through and looking at everything and figuring out, you know, what if we have this plan to pay off the debt? What if we do this? What if we do that? It was really a sense of you know, if we accomplish this plan, if we continue to approach this from a place of wholesomeness and not a place of cycling and addiction, and we become free of this debt, then it allows us to show up in the world in a bigger way. I believe what Lily is referring to here is that we live in a consumerist society where we're being told all day long that we need more, that we're not good enough, that this other thing will somehow make us better. We live in a society where we are told over and over that the answer is to consume, 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 and that we will become more valuable when we have more stuff. And the truth is that we just don't. Mary Shores shares her perspective on this. At the end of the day, you only can do what you can do. You can never do any more than what you can do. And so just do the best you can because it should not be something that just tears your life up. And I'm saying that in full knowledge that there's been times that, you know, I've let my emotions be affected by money too. But at the end of the day, money is just a made up thing. It's just a made up thing. It's, it's like something we created to play the game of life with. 
So sometimes I like to think of money like it's monopoly money, you know, and at the end of the game, you just, you know, you just reshuffle and, and pass out the money again. Things take up space, consume energy, and then weigh us down. All of this consumption contributes to and fuels a cycle of debt. In the example of Lily, she was so determined not to take on any debt that her emotional convictions based on fear led her to be half a million dollars in debt. Healthy debt is reciprocal in nature. There is emotional freedom in it. We understand what it means to pay it forward, but to receive it forward seems harder for us to understand. Healthy debt is when we borrow money as an exchange for building a healthy ecosystem for all. Your business, your life, your customer, future generations, and yes, even for the lender. Beautiful, it's okay to have debt. And as we close this week, remember, when you make friends with your personal story about debt, you can experience a well-filled life that is both satisfying and joyful. This is what living wealthy is all about. Join us in our next episode, where we discuss workaholism as a specific form of addiction in the debt cycle and what it takes to recover from burnout. Thank you for listening to The Nature of Money, a show of the Living Wealthy Institute. I'm your host, Jennifer Love. Thank you for joining me. Thank you to all of my guests who courageously and openly shared their stories and wisdom. Lily Mockerman, you can find her on LinkedIn. Dr. Reef Kareem, you can find him at reefkareem.com and themastermadness.com. And Mary Shores, you can go to amazon.com to check out her book, Conscious Communications. If you'd like support with identifying how your harmful narratives are blocking you from feeling worthy, valuable, whole, and freeing yourself and in your relationship with money, please book a discovery session with us. You can book that by going to jenniferlove.com and filling out a short and easy discovery form that helps me and the team prepare so we can show up and explore how to best support you. And will you take just a moment right now and give this show a stellar rating on the channel you're tuning into and then share this episode with someone who could really benefit from its magic. I deeply appreciate you.